Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to the Arkansas AgCast for May 7th. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. This week, we go in-depth on some critical issues facing agriculture in the wake of COVID-19. We talk with David Newman, president of the National Pork Board and Arkansas State animal science professor about troubles facing the pork industry. And we hear from U of A National Ag Law Center Director Harrison Pittman about the president's recent executive order designed to keep meatpacking plants operating. We also hear from Arkansas Farm Bureau's Travis Justice about the ongoing supply chain and processing issues hitting livestock and poultry growers. First up, Keith Sutton learns about all the problems the coronavirus outbreak has caused for the pork industry from Arkansas State University's David Newman, president of the National Pork Board. Welcome to AgCast. This is Keith Sutton with Arkansas Farm Bureau. I'm visiting today with Dr. David Newman of ASU who is the president of the National Pork Board. Welcome to AgCast, Dr. Newman. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, you know, uh, you and I have been playing phone tag a lot because there's so much going on here recently uh, with the pork industry. Uh, A lot of things happening uh, during this COVID-19 epidemic, and uh, we just kind of want to get you to Fill us in on what is happening in the pork world. Give it to us straight. Okay. Well, uh, certainly the the entire world is affected by COVID-19, and agriculture has been no, uh, certainly has not been accepted from that, uh, from the rule of a global pandemic, if there are any rules. And uh, it's all livestock producers are facing unprecedented times, and uh, the pork industry has been specifically hit very, very hard uh, here in the last uh, couple of months. And the last four weeks have been especially hard on our producers. So uh, as producer president of the National Pork Board, uh, I represent over 60,000 U.S. pork producers, ranging from very small producers to very large producers. And The first thing I can tell you is that regardless of size of production, regardless of where you market your animals, regardless of uh, any certain business scenario you have at hand, this is having a very, very significant impact on producers. And, you know, the scenario is, is... is complicated, but it's it's the one that's fairly easy to explain. So I'm going to start from the top and work my way backwards. And good deal. Uh, when I mention the top, uh, I'm really talking about. Uh, let's talk about demand first. So pork demand is very high. Uh, exports are at an all-time high. Uh, the demand for meat protein is very good out here in the marketplace. Many people have seen. Uh, you know, that, that, that retail grocery stores uh, are actually seeing shortages of meat. And uh, I think it's important that we point out some of the, the issues surrounding what's really happening here. There is no issue on pork supply, period, in the United States of America. What we're seeing right now, uh, if you've seen media uh, outlets who have been discussing uh, producers who are being faced with depopulation, making tremendously hard situation uh, uh, decisions 
Uh, what's really this is all caused by is an overall lack of labor in the processing sector. So moving away from demand and consumers into the processing sector, uh, the best way to explain this is, is really to use a, a plant-based scenario. And about three weeks ago, John Morrell in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, was asked to close their doors unexpectedly because of outbreaks in Sioux Falls uh, with employees who had tested positive for COVID-19 that worked at their processing plant. Um, without any prior warning, that plant was shut down. That plant processes about 19 to 21,000 fat hogs a day. So those are pigs that weigh between 280 and 300 pounds. And when you start backing up 20,000 pigs a day in, in a region surrounding Sioux Falls, uh, the situation got dire very quickly for those producers because all of the other processing plants in the country are actually – seeing reduced operational capacity because of employees uh, that are not coming to work, either because they are sick or they fear being sick. And that's led to the entire processing industry running way below capacity. And we were set up in a system that was designed here uh, to keep these plants full, to keep the supply chain full for all of this demand we've talked about. And now we quite literally have hundreds of thousands of pigs that are backed up in the supply chain. So basically what you're saying is there's still plenty of, of animals there that that we could be eating, except there's no not enough people to process them so the meat can be sent to our supermarkets. That's exactly right. And to add to the to the explanation on how this, this plays out. Uh, with farming, this is not this is not an easy game. And uh, we're in a situation where we're playing with biology. So uh, when, when this isn't a plant that can be shut down. There's no switch to shut off in biology. So if the supply chain was already full of, of large market hogs, which it was, and they continue to grow every day, and with the extreme uh, fall in market prices that we have seen as a result of the scenario around COVID-19, um, these producers can't continue to feed these market hogs to an unlimited weight because there, there just isn't enough processing capacity to pick up three or four or five plus weeks of hogs that have been backed up because now it's not just one plant. We've seen eight to ten pork processing plants either be closed or run as low as a quarter production. And it is backed up hogs, and, and in some cases, uh, it has put producers in a decision-making tree to make the ultimate decision, and that is uh, being forced with the, uh, the terrible scenario of depopulation because there quite honestly just isn't enough space. Even in small and medium processing, uh, there just isn't enough space out there right now to have volume. So if you were to take a look in your crystal ball, where, what, what do you anticipate might happen over the next uh, few weeks or months? Uh, do you think we'll see some relief from this scenario, or is it going to get worse, or do you have any idea at all? It's hard to sure. guess these days. 
Well, let me uh, play this out. I certainly don't have a crystal ball, but uh, being involved in this industry um, at the at the highest level every single day, I I can give you my personal David Newman opinion on how I think this is going to play that, out. That'll um, be great. We know too, and I should mention you're a pork producer yourself. You you raise hogs too, right? That's right. I run a pair finished operation, um, and we have 15 producers. The Raise Pigs is a part of our family program, and we direct meat to both retail and food service. Primary right. service until eight weeks ago, and as you know, every restaurant in America was shut down. So, right. so we, we've seen our fair share of challenges here as well. Uh, but here's the scenario I see playing out. As you all well know, by now, uh, the President of the United States signed into act the, the night before last, and uh, or three days ago. And you know the the that is, that kind of tells you the dire situation the processors are in. And by the way, Keith, let me remind you, this isn't just pork. Uh, beef plants are facing shutdowns. Poultry yes. plants are facing shutdowns. Uh, everybody in the supply chain is facing this. So, so uh, the president enacted the the the, the Food Defense Production Act, uh, put it in place that uh, hopefully will help increase business continuity. That's the whole purpose. Uh, the, the government is repurposing millions of of items of PPE, face masks, and otherwise. Uh, Dr. Mindy Bashir's at USDA is working with plants on a one-on-one -on -one basis. She's the Undersecretary of Food Safety. They're working with plants one-on-one, -on -one, both plants that have been impacted and closed and plants that have, uh, that have that remained open but are running at reduced capacity. So I think that, that first off, I think we will start to see these processors uh, reopen and, and at least not be closed. Right. And, they will definitely, in my professional opinion, run well below capacity for an extended period of time. How long that period is um, is yet to be seen. I think a lot of that depends on uh, the cases of COVID-19, uh, looking at antibodies, looking at how humans have been impacted, and if we start to see this flattening of the curve that we, we hear about every single day. So. I think we're we're going to get plants back up and running. We're seeing that already. Uh, we're going to run under capacity, which means uh, we're going to have some very tough market conditions for uh, more than likely the remainder of 2020 and into 2021. I mean, we have uh, – I'm a cattle producer also. Uh, we have a lot of fat cattle in the system that are backed up. Right. We've got a lot of hogs backed up. We've got poultry backed up. Uh, we've got lambs backed up. I mean, the prices have been gutted on all of these commodities, not to mention corn, soybean meal, and the list goes on and on. So if you're in agriculture right now, uh, you are certainly facing, like my family is, extraordinary times. Uh, but I think that as we start to climb out of this trench, the silver lining, the things I think we need to remember, um, the American farmer is extremely resilient. Uh, yes. They're very smart. They're very well prepared. 
Uh, I don't think anybody could be prepared for a worldwide pandemic, but certainly at the National Court Board, for example, uh, we've been in preparedness for the threat of foreign animal disease. That has been priority number one to us for a very long time. You know that African swine fever continues to ravage the world. Uh, we've lost hundreds of millions of pigs around the world, and that threat is still imminent. So uh, whenever you have crisis plans prepared, as we did, we've been able to allocate dollars to our producers and our states instantaneously to aid them through uh, the decision-making processes they're working in, business continuity, working with their state veterinarians, and a plethora of other things, resources to keep their workers safe and how to work with their processing plants. So, um, you know, we continue to live by what we, what we call our we care principles. Every day they're the ethical principles that we live on, and uh, we take it very seriously. So the silver lining that I was getting to is that demand is very good. It is very good. And I think as we come out of this, we're going to see continued demand, and hopefully we can start to suck up some of that supply uh, and put our producers in a situation where they can give their animals, put them in the food system, and get them in the hands of people that need them right. and uh, that we can recover. Well, we appreciate you taking time to help us better understand all this. I know people in a lot of places are, are commenting that they're not seeing uh, – an availability of meat like they did, and this helps explain a lot of that, why that's going on. Could you uh, let everybody know if they'd like to find more information, could you direct them to the websites? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, the first and most important thing is if we have producers in Arkansas or in our region who are impacted by this, the first and most important thing they need to do is work with their veterinarian and with the state veterinarian's office. So work with the, the Department of Agriculture and get that done. At the National Court Board level, the best thing they can do, we have a call-in crisis center set up. Right. We also have a website. You can go to pork.org, and it will lead you straight into a COVID-19 resource center that handles everything from managing feed rations to slow pigs down until the market conditions come into play depopulation, protocols, the state vet numbers that you need to call in your area, as well as, and this is something very important, is the emotional toll on farmers right now is, yes. is, is in a very, very serious state. And we have, uh, uh, we have mental wellness information available also and people that producers can talk to if they're going through these times because, there's nothing more important than our people and our animals yes. are right there behind us. For sure. Well, we appreciate everything y'all do at the National Pork Board. Uh, we encourage people to visit pork.org, O-R-G, and uh, there's more information there. But thank you uh, very much, Dr. Newman, for taking time to speak to us today and help us get the word out. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Next, Greg Patterson is joined by Arkansas Farm Bureau Chief Economist Travis Justice for an in-depth conversation about the wide range of challenges facing the state's poultry and livestock growers during the COVID-19 pandemic and learns what the future looks like right now for meat producers, consumers, and more.
This is Greg Patterson with Arkansas Farm Bureau, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, we're talking with Travis Justice. He's the chief economist for the Arkansas Farm Bureau, and Travis, the world has turned upside down on the the livestock and poultry side of things in regards to uh, the effects of the COVID-19. How do you assess it, and what's your perspective? Well, yeah, you're accurate. The uh, the the uh, markets and the food distribution system has been in a little state of upheaval here because of the uh, uh, the changes that have been made uh, in reaction to the virus. Uh, you know, travel restrictions, stay-at-home orders. It's it's changed uh, the uh, uh, particularly for impact on agriculture. It's changed the uh, the food buying habits. You know, with a lot of restaurants closed, now the primary source for food was is uh, grocery stores. Uh, particularly in the meat world, roughly half of all the meat consumed in the United States is consumed away from home. Restaurants, food service establishments, so forth. So now with all that segment of the market closed or slowed down significantly, now it, there was some distribution issues of getting those supplies package processed and packaged properly for the uh, retail grocery store market. So that costs and, some and tra- Travis, explain to the, the listeners, when you say packaged differently, uh, a lot of folks listening may not understand that, you know, uh, beef sent to a restaurant is packaged differently than beef sent to a grocery store. Yes, well, for beef, for example, you know, they may get uh, – you know, a case or two cases of uh, of uh, particular steak cut. You know, they're not individually wrapped; they come in a case. So now, if uh, the same the same cut is offered at grocery store, but it's an individually wrapped, individually priced, so they've got to be packaged. Uh, a lot of times, the uh, the uh, supplies that are shipped to restaurants may need further. You know they're trimmed different, maybe cut different for a restaurant than you than you do for uh, what's uh, uh, supplied in grocery stores. So it takes a little different fabrication plus packaging. A classic example, if I could use the dairy world here, is uh, a cheese. You know they package shredded cheese in a one-pound pack for consumers to buy at the grocery store. That same cheese product is shipped to a restaurant in a 50-pound bag. And so you're not going to just put 50-pound bags of cheese at the grocery store, so they got to re, repackage it and so forth. Oh, and by the way, it's a different cheese plant that is supplying the product to the restaurants than, than the cheese plant that supplies it to grocery stores. So you got to shift that supply around that is uh, used to the packaging and processing that, that consumers are expect, expect. Right on a grocery store level. Uh, and so that caused disruption. And then added to that, uh, and then the next wave of, uh, of shock to the system was when we started uh, uh, stay at home, work from home, stay at home, and all that. Well, and then the other is they closed schools. Well, uh, so now... Uh, some of the processing sector is very labor dependent, and so 
the some particularly meat processors saw a lot of absenteeism of workers not showing up because they had kids at home, and then it took a while for them to get their kids situated so they could return back to work, and so that caused some disruptions in the labor supply, and so uh, there was less less processing happening because the labor force was restricted somewhat. Then add to that some, the concern with worker safety in these processing plants, and some plants had to close because some of the workers were contact, contracting the virus and so forth. So that caused several uh, packing plants, processing plants to close just for worker safety reasons. Well, that restricted the amount of product coming out. You know, Now, some of them made up the difference by working on Saturdays to try to catch up with supply but still, uh, the uh, where plants are used to running 90, 95% of their capacity, now they're running 70, 75% of their capacity because of social distancing that's required with workers in a plant or plant workers not being able to show up because of either illness or other obligations that they get because uh, schools are closed and other... so. So it's it's created a bottleneck, if you will, in the food chain, particularly on the meat side, uh, with not being able to process as many animals as we used to because the labor force isn't there. At the same time, we, uh, you know, consumers are still demanding the product, so it's creating a little shorter supply coming out of the plant than what the market is normally accustomed to. So it's created some upward price pressure on consumer prices but downward price price pressure on uh, cattle farmers and, and hog farmers and dairymen because they can't get it processed uh, fast enough. And so the food chain is uh, kind of a, it's a continuous, uh, each segment is interdependent of the other. And so if we have to slow down processing, you know, there's animals that's scheduled to be processed every day. So if we slow that down, that just backs up those animals uh, and uh, and and depresses those prices, and because there's they're not in such the animals aren't in as great a demand because the prices can't handle as many. So it's created a, a, a dichotomy of prices here. You know, farm prices going down and consumer prices going up just because of that restricted supply. That applies particularly to the meats, but we had a shock with the, in, in dairy, for example. One-third of all the dairy products consumed are consumed in food service and school outlets. So now we had to redirect those supplies to, to uh, consumer outlets, uh, food grocery stores. So there was disruptions in the normal flow of the food supply. And so, so that leads to... With, that, with the uh, limited... limited capability of even process the uh, the animals or the product. So that's just created all kinds of price disruption and normal food flow. There's plenty and ample food out here. We've got we just seen in the meat world some restrictions on our ability to process it and get it to, to consumers. And so 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 you wind up with a with a, a person who's just, you know, a casual viewer just watching T V and and they see milk getting dumped out or or beans right. getting plowed under. Right. Or, now we've or, seen you know during during those you know, it takes a while you know for plants to readjust for 
get your distribution network reestablished to go to another outlet. You know, uh, you know, you may be used to sending all your supply to the food service industry. Well, it takes a while to re reconnect with the distribution channel and brokers to get it directed to grocery stores in that interim process. And, of course, with milk, they milk cows every day. Every day there's milk supply coming. So if you stop that system for any reason, supplies are going to back up. Well, milk in particular, highly perishable product, you can't store it very long. And so it resulted in having to dump some milk supplies because we couldn't we did, couldn't get it processed because of the disruption in the, where these products has to go and repackage and all that. And so, uh, uh, so it um, uh, we and then the same thing with some of the, uh, the vegetable crops. You know, now's the time when in you know southern extreme southern parts of the country, vegetable it's vegetable season. You know, they're a little month or six weeks ahead of us here, and so. Uh, some of the outlets for those fresh products closed when we closed food service. And so, and there's more product coming right behind it. So it resulted in, in a few cases around the country of having to just plow up the crops because there's no market for it. Uh, because there's more supplies coming here in a few weeks. And so what do we do with the supplies we have now? And it's a fresh product and highly perishable. So, they had to just, you know, in certain areas of the country, they had to plow up some crops just to dispose of them. Uh, but, and uh, because they lost their normal food chain uh, distribution network. Uh, now, it takes a while to readjust, and, and folks are doing that. Uh, but it caused some temporary uh, uh, bottlenecks in the system, which required destroying product. Uh, because uh, there's nowhere to store it, uh, or the product will deteriorate, uh, and so um, that's uh, created some, uh, you know, sad situations for that. We've had uh, in the poultry industry, they haven't had a lot of plant closures, but some plants have had to slow down because of worker safety, and it, and the poultry industry is a ten-time inventory. Uh, you know, we were scheduled these uh, birds to be processed today. There's another another group scheduled tomorrow. Well, if you slow that down, you know you have you get some supplies that are can't be processed. And uh, if we keep growing, we're going to be too big. The quality of the product's not going to be as good. So it required disposing of some birds, and we've seen in some sections of the country having to do that. So. So trying to walking through the whole entire food chain, there's there's ample food supplies in this country. You know, in fact, in the meats, we were scheduled if everything uh, normal. We were scheduled to have record beef, record pork, and record poultry production in this country this year. Right. This situation developed, so we have huge supplies of meat that's scheduled to be processed. When we slow the processing down because of the virus, that just creates a bottleneck back on the farm. The way this, the, the way farmers are most directly impacted, other than a few cases where they've had to destroy crops, but anyway, those that have inventory, that it's time to sell that product, uh, uh, they, uh, they're facing drastically lower prices than they did you know, six weeks ago. You know, so, we've, so, seen, we, we've seen cattle prices drop 30 to 30 percent in six weeks 
because of the lack of demand limited by the processing capability. So, so it's created a, a severe hardship on uh, farmers out here uh, uh, in getting their product marketed. Yeah, and, and, and what I hear you saying is that severe hardships on the farmer and the farmers are out there every day still doing what they always do. They're producing enough food. They're yeah, producing. But, they're they're yeah. out there working, but but the supply chain is broken down. And, yeah, and they, uh, yeah, that, that's what say the supply chain is not broken. The supply chain has slowed down, which correct. has created you know the, the, this industry is geared for full production and to feed to feed this country and uh, export products around the world. And uh, now you slow that down uh, in a short period of time. Now. Had we known five, six months from now this was going to happen, we could readjust our food production to account for it. But just to suddenly do it, uh, you know, it takes about uh, three or four months to redirect the poultry uh, chain to adjust production to to the system. Uh, It takes three years to readjust the cattle industry to meet changes in the system so just to to, uh, for this situation to basically happen overnight and for us to have to adjust in a in a week or two week or three weeks time a system isn't built to make those kind of adjustments and so it's it's resulted in uh, supplies being uh, uh, captured or trapped uh, and slowed down and uh, farm prices have deteriorated a classic example uh, one third of all the corn produced in the United States is used for ethanol fuel production. Right. Well, we all know what's happened to the oil market. You know, at times when oil was down to zero, you know, and it oils that it had, you know, as the lowest prices almost in history for crude oil. And so, uh, you know, so and then with the travel restrictions, people aren't consuming enough, and so the fuel prices have just dropped. Well, one third of all the corns used for fuel, so corn prices have dropped because they're not in much demand for that for that market outlet anymore. So, uh, so they've got a unique situation there. But you know, on the meat and the consumable food, fresh foods, fresh meats, fresh vegetables, this sudden adjustment in the demand being Food service outlets closed. Now, now we got to shift all that food over to different outlet chain with grocery stores. Takes a while for those adjustments to happen. And then, uh, the, particularly in the meat sector, it's a highly labor concentrated uh, industry. And so, when you start having uh, worker health issues show up, it's just required some additional slowing down of the system to account for employee absenteeism, whether it's absenteeism because of illness, because of concern that they might get ill, because they've got kids that now they have to attend to that we didn't have to. So it's just caused some labor disruptions uh, uh, in the uh, in the processing sector. So kind of almost a perfect storm here for farmers. Uh, and then on top of that, we have our normal challenges with weather. You know, it's been an unusually wet spring here, and so it's delayed planting of crops. It's delayed 
uh, work with fertilizing pastures for grazing animals. And so you've got those normal weather challenges that, that affect uh, issues. A lot of our crops, a lot of our crops and meats depend heavily on or have been depend on the ability to export those products to other countries. Well, with this world pandemic, the export market has, is still open. We're still shipping product overseas, but that has slowed some because of disease concern in some of these foreign ports and some of the situations. So that has slowed a little bit further deteriorating prices. So until, um, you know, it's a situation that we've never seen before, basically, where the entire world, I guess you have to go back to World War II, when you basically, you could say the entire world is facing a single crisis. Moving you know, moving forward, um, you know, with with the pack, meat packing plants, how do you kind of break it down as to how you see uh, the effect I, I, on farmers' poultry, swine, and cattle. You know, poultry has been kind of less impacted with plant closures than the others have, because uh, you know, you know why. Uh, you know, most the majority of poultry production in this country is in the southern states, and those southern states were not as heavily impacted by the coronavirus as some of the other states were. And so whether or not whether or not that's a reason that poultry now they've had to slow down some plants in some isolated areas, but sure. uh they hadn't faced the challenges the the uh, the red meats have. Uh moving forward, uh the president this week, you know, uh, enforced uh, the uh an executive order to place uh, meat processing facilities as a part of the essential infrastructure of this country and would get to guarantee that they do stay open. Uh, additional federal help will come in for added worker safety precautions. They still, so at least we may not face any, uh, any more plant closures except for routine cleaning and other things. Uh, so that could have stabilized things. Uh, and really, uh, once we get, um, and then as states start opening up and businesses start opening up, uh, food service, restaurants start opening back up, we can get back a little closer to our meeting our normal supply chain outlets and how long that will take. Um, but I can see as we progress through the year here, uh, you know, and as these states open up their economies more, that will, and then as we stabilize the processing sector, uh, that will at least relieve some of the current pressure on uh, farm prices and farmers' flexibility here. So, but it will take several months before and to get back where, where we were in February. It will take the rest. You know, if all things goes well, it will take uh, most of the rest of the year to get readjusted back, get people back comfortable with going out eating in restaurants comfortable with traveling, comfortable in meeting with large groups, uh, comfortable with traveling like we do. So it'll take, even though we may lift all restrictions, it'll take a while for for the public to be uh, comfortable with getting back to what used to be normal, you know. And so that'll be a long, gradual process. And then, you know, as, and so the food system is there. We'll, you know, it's sound. It's just facing some of the same challenges that other industries are with 
uh, with uh, in, concerning employees. Travis, what about uh, you know unemployment? It's skyrocketed. You've mentioned uh, the issues in the meatpacking plants, and what effect does that have on the recovery of of this this whole agriculture sector? Well, yes, the country, given these temporary shutdowns because of the virus, as uh, you see, the unemployment numbers have gone to record levels because business closures and so forth. Uh, uh, and so the, uh, given that, uh, consumers, particularly that segment, but probably all consumers, are going to be a little, little more cautious with their spending and uh, particularly their food budget, will be, they'll be economizing more with their food purchases, more so than they were before. So, uh, you know, particularly on beef, you know, so the, the demand for high-quality steaks, if you will, may, may be less now, and then people opt more for the cheaper cuts, you know, to economize on their food purchases. That contains the internal demand, for for beef products until income stabilizes and you know the unemployment starts going down and the overall economy stabilizes, so that affects what type of food. Plenty of food will just uh, impact for that sector, particularly what type of food products are demanded. Uh, same with all, and particularly. Uh, uh, you know, we'll open up the food service industry and restaurants, but. You know, it'll take a while for people to to uh, get comfortable in getting in those settings, plus uh, uh, going to uh, those outlets uh, before, uh, uh, which may be more expensive than eating at home. And so as they'll change the uh, – it'll take a while for the food service sector to come, come back because people are economizing on food purchases. Now, those uh, – Family and fast food and so forth, uh, they uh, they make bounce back quicker than your white tablecloth, you know, high end restaurant trade um, and so forth. So it's going to change the type of products demanded for for all products here, as consumers adjust to an unstable economy and particularly that sector that's unemployed with unstable income. So that's that will affect the type, of, you know. You know, they will seek nutrition somewhere, but it'll affect the type of products that they're demanding, and that'll impact farm prices um, uh, accordingly. It, explain to folks, you mentioned earlier, you know, beef uh, can take up to three years to adjust to changes, and chicken's a lot more nimbler. And for those who aren't aware of, well, why is that the case? Tell them why that's well, the case. Well, you know, in between chicken and beef, and we're going to alter the production system, you know, in the food chain. Well, it's just the biology of the animal, probably. It takes 21 days to hatch an egg and seven weeks to grow that chick up to table ready, ready to process into meat products for consumption. That takes um, That takes 10 weeks. That entire life cycle of that animal is 10 weeks. So it takes 10 weeks to readjust how many eggs are hatched and how many chicks are, you know. And so that same process, biology of the animal, you know, of course you have to have a, a female animal to have a cat. So so uh, if you decide to increase beef, decrease beef production uh, or change it in any way, 
uh, it uh, you have a, a female animal they're bred. It takes nine months to have that calf, and then it takes about anywhere from twenty from twenty four to thirty months for that calf to be ready to be processed in the food product. So you got thirty months plus nine months. So you're talking something over three years from the time the decision made to breed this animal so we'll have a calf and then that calf turns into products to be processed for food that takes three years right so, uh, <laughs> now we can stop production real quick but then you got these animals here what do you do with them so so to alter you know for them animals that are currently raised and them to go would be marketed and and Farmers receive returns on those. You know, they've got to work all the way through the system. Uh, and then, so, but if you go back and stop or that, so it's three years from now before you will see, you know, significant declines in production because we've already got product in the chain. So it takes three years to significantly alter the flow of beef, you know, uh, where it takes 10 weeks to change the whole production output system for poultry. Pork hogs are somewhere in between there, two years or whatever, uh, 18 months, two years to change that production model, if you will, uh, to, uh, you know, you'll, uh, without having to destroy animals or producers, you know, suffer severe hardships uh, uh, in the chain. So just that whole life cycle biology of the animal dictates the, the ability or the speed at which an industry can adjust to current conditions, you know. Uh, and particularly when you have sudden changes like we've had, it's difficult to adjust that production system because we've got, basically, we've got production in the pipeline that keeps it's a continuous flow pipeline. Well, when you suddenly stop it, it's going to back up down the, down the line and to, to change, change the system where that doesn't occur, you know, we can do it, but it's going to be for beef three years before we see the result of that totally. It only takes 10 weeks to see the result of that decision totally on part. So uh, I don't know if that explains it thoroughly, but that's kind of the, uh, uh, you know, in order to keep the system stable, it takes time to readjust uh, to uh, meet sudden changes, you know, or, you know, any kind of change, if we're going to totally readjust to it, it takes that kind of time frame to, for the food system to, to slow down or speed or speed up either. You know, it's uh, it's that type of, uh, you know, it was, these are still biological products. The plants and animals are based on the biology of the plant or the animal kind of dictates the ability to change the production method, production volume, and you know, even for plants, you got to, if you want to increase them, you got to plant the seed and give time for it to grow and be harvested and processed and then it's food. So that takes a while, you know. How so, about uh, in, in, in regards to Arkansas, of course, agriculture is the number one um, industry in the state. Um, how do you see this playing out over time in Arkansas as far as ag is concerned? Well, uh, you know, of course, the the uh, right now the you know we don't like for the only meat processing uh, industry we have in Arkansas is poultry, and we are a dominant state in poultry production. Uh, 
poultry in that industry has been a little more stable than the red meat industry has. So their their ability to bounce back and cope will be a little different, uh, particularly because of the, their structure, a totally integrated structure, and, and they own all the animals. They have growers that grow for them, which is our farmers out here on the farm. But it's a little more... Uh, a closed system, if you will. So their ability to adjust is, is and then their, their impact hadn't been as great. Uh, some, yes, because they lost food service industry just like everybody else. But uh, so they can adjust quicker. Uh, we have very limited and no real commercial red meat processing facilities in Arkansas. Uh, our primary industry here is growing the animals that you know, is is maintaining the cow herd that has the calves. We take the calves up to a certain level, ship them out of state to further grazing or to feedlots to be finished out and then into the processing plant. So we don't have the the beef industry here. We have the cattle industry here. Right. And so our our uh, sector there is, is uh, and in the way this is in, in, in backing down the chain, what farmers farmers are facing is just lower prices for their animal. So right now we've got a period of time where prices drop 33% here in six weeks. Whether they'll come back, they will tend to start coming back when we stabilize the process and get the food supply and the food demand back in some kind of order, then we could see some improvement in those prices. But right now, the the impact on you know we hadn't you know it had impacted the animals themselves just the price and the income that farmers can get from that same with hog uh, we've not seen significant impact other than price uh, with our fruit and vegetable industry here uh, because we're just now getting to our season and so here shortly we'll see of the Fruit and vegetable crops that we have primarily in this state, uh, it's uh, it's a little early season yet. So uh, once those start to be harvested later in the summer, uh, you know things could be improved by then. But uh, right now, if uh, they're probably looking at somewhat lower prices until we get this, this food demand and all the distribution channels open. So. Uh, uh, and then our corn farmers again. I explain our corn. You know, they're, they're, they've seen a 25, 30 percent drop in corn prices because of the element and that makes up that price. Uh, the ethanol element of the corn demand is uh, deteriorated greatly. So, so our farmers are, and, and of course, farmers are facing some depressed prices for the last year or so anyway. Uh, just because of record levels of production. Uh, we had some disruptions because of trade disputes with the tariff wars that were going on a year or so ago, and that interrupted some of the flow of product overseas or out of country. And so that kept uh, prices a little bit subdued. And then about the time some of that started opening back up, now we got the coronavirus. And so, so, uh, we were scheduled for record, so prices were under pressure significantly anyway, pretty well across the board. And now we add this, these complications to it, which is only further deteriorated. So the net income for uh, Arkansas farmers this year will be severely uh, restricted. Uh, 
a little early to put to to uh, put some final numbers on him because depending on what things happen, and, you know, we do have you know, if we state start open up, we we have do have a chance to recover significantly if the disease is subsided as you know, as consumers get back and we restore the economy and, and jobs return. You know, we have a chance to recover significantly deeper in the year. So but but uh, probably not enough to totally offset the losses we've incurred in the last six weeks, two months. So uh, um, it um, it's going to be a uh, income wise. It's going to be another depressed year across across the board, particularly. I mean, in all segments, probably instead of just one segment that faced more export challenges than the other, uh, or uh, uh, and in some industries they did not have an oversupply situation but they kind of do now because we've limited the processing on it so it's backed up on the farm so if we can get the processing and distribution channels somewhere open to somewhat normal then it becomes a matter of just consumer demand and uh, what type of foods they uh, and they demand uh, how much they go out to eat versus they're going to eat, but they, you know where they eat and the distribution networks back in place. So, uh, so it's going to be a very challenging year. Uh, be difficult for things to return uh, pr- price-wise to uh, where they were when we started the year, uh, just because of the backlog and severe interruptions that we're facing now, and then how much longer we have before, you know, the disease concerns have ebbed and consumers are more comfortable to getting back to a normal uh, work pattern, uh, recreation pattern, uh, and all things that are all elements of food demand. Well, Travis Justice is the chief economist for the Arkansas Farm Bureau Travis, thank you so much for spending time with us and kind of giving us an idea of what's going on in these turbulent times. The good news is the farmer's still out there producing the food, and uh, once this COVID thing gets settled, things should settle down for the agriculture world. Thank you, Travis, for spending time with us. Finally, Greg has a conversation with Harrison Pittman, director of the National Ag Law Center at the University of Arkansas. Pittman helps clarify President Trump's recent executive order invoking the Defense Production Act to keep meat processing plants open. Many of these plants have large numbers of employees who have tested positive for coronavirus. This is Greg Patterson with Arkansas Farm Bureau, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, our guest today is Harrison Pittman. Harrison's the director of the National Ag Law Center for the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. And today the topic is we're going to talk to Harrison about the recent executive order that President Trump signed uh, in regards to keeping uh, the meatpacking plants open. Harrison, uh, let's get a little history and background first. Uh, The president used the Defense Production Act in this executive order. What is the Defense Production Act and uh, how long has it been around? All right, those are good questions, and, you know, first of all, I want to say thank you for allowing me to, to be with you today, and I hope that I can be helpful um, to to the audience in understanding the, some of these the outcomes, some of these decisions, and where we're at. So, um, you know, I feel like 
you know, so your question about what it is. Well, the Defense Production Act uh, is really the Defense Production Act of 1950, and its origins primarily trace to, uh, you know, a time period when, when President Harry Truman was in charge of the country. Um, and we were really, you know, in that space between the end of World War II and, and coming into uh, what later became known as the Korean War. And uh, primarily because we, the way that we had won and had won uh, World War II, you know, the country was uh, coming out of it in that post-war period. And, you know, frankly, we, and having the atomic bomb at our disposal, uh, we didn't invest as much in the military or military readiness. It wasn't completely ignored by any means, but um, but it was something that, uh, uh, you know, we had a gap there. And then when the North Koreans crossed the 38th parallel, uh, the president is confronted with a situation where he really needs to mobilize the, the country and the private sector to help mobilize for a war effort, which he did. And, and so Congress passed the Defense Production Act which was based on two prior items of legislation that were World War II era but had expired. Uh, and so that's how long it's been around. It's something that because of its nature, it is an extraordinary delegation of power by the legislative branch, in other words, Congress, to the executive branch, which is our president, obviously, and that president can change, will change every uh, four to eight years. Uh, and so... You know, there are some provisions that it has to be renewed. Uh, there are some limitations in so that the, the legislation just can't uh, exist in its form without some kind of legislative review. But uh, but it can also be amended, as we've seen in recent years. Uh, and um, and so that's, that's your basic history, uh, you know, the nutshell being that it really started with that concept of military preparedness specifically beginning with the Korean War, but it's continued since. Okay, how about, uh, that's, a, that's a great explanation that really helps me understand where this is coming from as well. Now, what about an executive order? When the president signs an executive order, give our listeners a background on, on what that means. No, that's, a, that's a terrific question. So, um, it might, for, for your listeners, it might be easiest to define that by comparing it uh, to say legislation, uh, you know, so start with that concept where the, both the House and the Senate propose legislation. They ultimately have to enact, uh, uh, legislation that then, uh, goes to use it to a conference. And then what comes out of conference has to be passed again. And both chambers have to pass the same thing. And then it goes to a president and it's either vetoed or signed into law and then it becomes effective, uh, uh, whatever the applicable date is for that legislation. That's right. the legislative process. That's Congress and the executive branch working together under the framework of the Constitution. Um, the executive order is, it's quite literally what it sounds like. It's the executive, the president, uh, whether that be from Franklin Roosevelt up through, uh, uh, President Donald Trump. Uh, that is them issuing as president an order for a specific matter. Typically, executive orders are, they, I think they're generally more pro forma. They, um, they're not typically controversial, but that's obviously not always the case. You know, um, you know, for example, uh, President Obama issued an executive order dealing with, uh, uh, the so-called, you know, dreamers, DACA you know, an immigration policy in the United States. 
other presidents have issued executive orders that uh, some have drawn more attention than others. Um, and, um, uh, and you know, that, that so it's basically, it's, it's a proclamation by the president. They don't, standing by themselves, theoretically, they don't have the force and effect of law, typically. I think there's a wrinkle in this with the Defense Production Act that we'll get into. But, uh, but nevertheless, they are significant and they can have a, a real practical impact under any circumstance. And after all, it is the president saying this is what I want or don't want. And so, exactly. um, the, and, and particularly with federal agencies that they oversee in the executive branch. So, so in this case, we have the marriage of uh, something that was legislatively passed by Congress, the Defense Production Act, with an executive order where the president gives authority to the Secretary of Agriculture to to uh, make sure these meatpacking plants remain opening. So, so how does the Defense Production Act apply to the meat packers via an executive order to the Secretary of Agriculture? <laughs> well, <laughs> here we go. Um, I think that there there are some open and currently still not answered questions uh, that, that that would go with your your very good question. Uh, from a, so one thing that I think will be a good segue from the history to where we are to, to that helps answer your question, you know, the Defense Production Act um, under that, it's in a sense, it's not, it's already activated. Right. Um, and particularly with respect to the Secretary of Agriculture, we're actually, we're rightfully so, we're focused on the April 28, 2020 executive order dealing with the meat packers. But there's also another executive order that is relevant, and that is an executive order that goes back to March of 2012, which was an update to an executive order from the 1990s. Um, and so under that that 2012 executive order, the president had already delegated, the president at that time, and it remained in effect going forward, the president had already delegated to the Secretary of Agriculture a number of, of authorities that, uh, that trigger or could trigger under the uh, under the Defense Production Act. Compare that with, say, the Department of Defense, which, frankly, more routinely uses aspects, particularly the priority and allocation uh, uh, requirements or uh, provisions, I should say, under the Defense Production Act. So it's not, in a sense, like to most of us, it seems new. I think for most people in the country, the first time most people would hear about the Defense Production Act was in, as part of the discourse uh, about ventilators and medical equipment in response to the current COVID-19 pandemic. Right. Um, so I say that as context, going back to the Secretary of Agriculture. Um, so when we're talking about the questions of what authority under the DPA does the Secretary have, we're at least looking at two different executive orders. We're looking at the April 28th, and we're looking at this one from 2012. Um, and so now your question about what does it do? Yeah, what does it do? Right. Now that's where the rock and roll starts. Uh, what does it do? Well, in the press accounts and in the public statements made by, uh, particularly by the president um, in issuing this and then the media covered since, 
the primary focuses uh, have been on uh, that the executive order is designed to uh, compel meat packers to remain open. Uh, and the, the background problem there, I think your the audience would know, but in a nutshell, the background problem is is that uh, due to COVID-19, there is a significant impact on the workforce, uh, and so that's contributed to people being sick. Uh, it's contributed to many plants temporarily or indefinitely needing to shut down. Uh, that has occurred. And several have. So, so these are the COVID-19 hotspots is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And so the concern is it's the underlying problem in and of itself, uh, lower, uh, less, uh, a fewer number of employees to process creates uh, an enhanced choke point, if you will, in the food supply chain, particularly with livestock and poultry. Um, in addition, there is, and this really gets into the meat of it, uh, in addition, you have instances where, many instances, it's the companies themselves that have shut down. In other instances, it's been a health, uh, it's been a, a, it's been a county health department or state health department or other appropriate uh, local, state or local government entity that has intervened. And that is identified in the executive order as, as part of the concern here that uh, and that these state or local entities could uh, compel a, a plant to shut down or suspend operation uh, for a short or indefinite period of time while they remedy situations related to uh, worker uh, and, I think, in conjunction, the surrounding community, public health. Uh, right. So that's the first part. The second part is liability. And um, uh, so uh, and the idea being that the executive order sets into motion uh, the ability for meat packers to later be uh to enjoy some level of of uh legal liability protection uh in the event that there are suits filed uh about you know worker safety everything from you know I, an individual saying I, I was I I got sick at work uh to you know all various manners of state tort law claims that could that could come up with that now, what what does it not do, in your opinion, the executive order? Hmm. <laughs> it doesn't answer all of our questions. <laughs> um, you know, it, that's, that's least, why I'm talking to a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Well, go back to that first point about does it? Let's just ask the question: uh, Does this allow the federal government to override uh, a county or state? Health Department, for example, uh, should they want or order a, a particular plant to be closed? And, and um, let's bring that right here to Arkansas. This is a, a, for instance, let's say the governor through the Arkansas Health Department, you know, says, boy, there's meatpacking plants here that, that we need to shut down because there's a high incidence of COVID-19 among the workers and and through the authority of the health department, the state health department, they go ahead and, and make that attempt to do that. How does this executive order come into play? All right. That's a great question. 
So I think that there is there is an underlying constitutional based issue that just rooted in our our, our federalism system of government um, and whether the federal government has the actual constitutionally based legal authority to override a state's action. Um, as a practical matter, my sense is that we probably will never get to that point. Uh, we'll part, right. In other words, we probably will never get to a point where this is actually sitting before uh, a court to be decided and then appealed, of course. Um, I think that the practical effect of the executive order is that it's going to, and, and they may have likely this would have been the scenario anyway, but it's going to at least, it's going to force the different parties to work together, local, state, federal, the private sector. Um, and I think that's that's part of the, I think that's, as a practical matter, I think that's where uh, this probably plays out. Like, you could have a state, uh, and, you know, in your example, you know, they may, they're going to work together. They're going to try to come up with a plan, and in the background will be the Secretary of Agriculture that has, and, you know, in the next few minutes we'll get into sort of like what are the parameters. You know, if you saw the letter yesterday, the last sentence that went out to all the governors, I think it was the, there was two letters. There was one that went to stakeholders, and there was one that went to governors. And it was in one of them, the last sentence read, other measures are under consideration and will be taken if necessary. So, I mean, they're in, that's kind of the bridge to the future. Like, what does that mean? Now, if you did, let's go back and let's say, let's say you got into a situation where a state really felt like it needed to do that or for whatever it's, it reason it wanted, it went down that path. I think probably, and I'm just using my imagination, probably the path that a state would likely choose if it got to that extreme and unlikely circumstance, I want to make sure we talk, we put that in there. It's not likely to get to this point. Right. I think they might say, you know what, let's just sidestep the issue of whether we can force the plant to stay open and we could uh, proceed with everything going on around the plant. For example, stay-at-home orders. We could put something in place that basically prevents people from moving as freely. We clamp down. Uh, in this particular area, and therefore that would in largely incorporate uh, the employees. Uh, that gets messy enough that I still think the practical aspect is the one that would be the scenario that that plays out. Uh, you know, as we get into those those circumstances. So the stakeholders, what you're saying is the stakeholders would all get together, sit around the table, and work this thing out rather than pushing it into the court. That's my now. That's my speculation. That's what I I think is the most likely scenario. And you know, let's step back from it. it. Step away from the Defense Production Act and the executive orders. The country at large has a strong interest in these plants continuing to operate, even absent any any just as a practical matter. Sure. You know, and um, and so I think that the motivation practically is going to be to to find a solution that 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 doesn't doesn't expand. Um, so so what about what about in regards to uh, we've talked about some of the potential pros and cons of of the authority the federal authority versus the state authority. Uh, 
What about, let's revisit liability protection. Does the executive order provide liability protection to meatpackers based on what you've read? All right. Uh, once again, another, uh, it's a terrific question. So based on what I've read, there is, believe it or not, a split of opinion. And there's, and there's a split of, in, in terms of what other people have opined, experts. Uh, and, you know, it is telling that you have very intelligent people looking at the same thing, and they they don't come down exactly on the same page. Sure. Um, so for, what's an example of that that, that okay. you've come across? Um, it would be, you know, on the one hand, uh, one one line of argument is that it just says that there's nothing inherent in the executive order itself that provides this liability protection. That's that's one way, that's one argument that's been uh, put out there. There's another, and this is also uh, embedded in the language, but there's another that says, you know, uh, the fact that the CDC, so Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC and OSHA, uh, have put out a joint guidance, and it's even though it's guidance, so long as uh, the, the meatpackers are in good faith attempting to, to comply with that, uh, that that will either provide or help provide uh, some level of liability protection in subsequent legal actions. And the argument would go, I think, uh, you know, for the most part, a lot of these legal actions would either be centered on or they would include a claim for negligence. And the 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 core issue with negligence is duty of care. What it's called duty of care. What duty of care was owed and was that duty of care breached? And I think part of the argument would be that the duty of care could be defined as complying with these guidelines. And so in that that instance I think you could say that there's um uh liability protection. Now you know part of and I'm, this is, I think, what I'm saying next, I think, is new to this conversation, and it's probably a good segue to sort of the broader questions about the application of the DPA, and that is there is statutory language. So there is language in the statute itself, in the what Congress enacted, what the president signed into law, that exists with or without the executive order. And uh, so the defense, what you're saying is the Defense Production Act has statutory language in it in regards to this. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you can hear my pages turning. I'm, if I can turn to it, let anyone just read it. Uh, it's, uh, if, if I don't turn to it quickly here, I'm just going to have to paraphrase it, which uh, looks like it's going to be what I have to do. Um, I've got a three-ring binder here. Sometimes it's hard to navigate it. But basically, it states that no person shall be liable for damages or penalties that result from compliance with a rule, regulation, or order. Here, I'll turn to it as I was finishing that. Uh, let's see how close I was to quoting it from memory. Uh, this is 50 U.S.C. Section 4557 in Subchapter 3 of the Defense Production Act. No person shall be held liable for damages or penalties for any act or failure to act resulting directly or indirectly from compliance with a rule, regulation, or order issued pursuant to this chapter, and then it has a comma. After the comma, it says, notwithstanding 
that any such rule, regulation, or order shall thereafter be declared by judicial or other competent authority to be invalid. So, you know, in the traditional sense, I think that people who deal with the Defense Production Act historically would look at that language and it re- they would really think about contracts because that's a key part of the DPA where the government can force they can cancel existing contracts They're, or in effect they can take they can in effect cancel uh, in that the government can place an order for the same good that had already been contracted for between two entities and the government's contract takes priority right. um, and so the question becomes about you know breach of contract and uh, you know, is a contractor liable to others uh, and would otherwise be a breach of contract? That's the general, that's the traditional way. Uh, a person could read that more broadly to say, well, hang on, what Congress is saying here, it says no person, and person has a statutory definition, and then it says shall, which is mandatory, and it says be held, which is going to particularly talk about courts because the courts make holdings. Right. Uh, damages or penalties, and so we all kind of know what those are, uh, for any act or failure to act resulting directly or indirectly from compliance, which means trying to follow rules, and it says with a rule, regulation, or order issued by pursuant to the subchapter. So we now have an order, if you're going to read the word order to mean executive order, at least one, uh, I would say two at least uh, that I mentioned earlier, that have been issued um, that even if it's somehow later declared invalid according to the statutory language, if the statutory language is applied, uh, it still uh, would, the person would be absolved of liability. And so that is untested. That is definitely uh, what I would consider to be uncharted waters. Uh, and But it's still one that in the conversation about liability, that's not something I have seen in the interviews I've read and, and, and uh, experts in the area, that's not something that they have that I've seen. Uh, but you know, from a perspective of, you know, had you told me six or seven weeks ago that I'd spend all this time over the last few days <laughs> reading the Defense Production Act, um, you know, I would have I would have said, I just just beam me up now, Scotty, because I don't want to know what's coming. If that's what I'm doing, it can't be good. Um, and yet here we are. So when I read that, I'm reading it from the from a perspective of someone not experienced in the Defense Production Act and having to learn what's out there. Um, and so I think that that's still an open issue. I would be surprised, frankly, in the future if there was litigation and that argument wasn't at least raised. Sure. Um, and so I think it's relevant to the discussion. It remains to be seen. So. In general, I think that the executive order certainly sets into motion uh, a trajectory that provides generally more legal protection than would otherwise be there. Um, and um, but you know, and hopefully, hopefully, are the problems that are being addressed through the EO, the executive order EO. Uh, hopefully, they're not prolonged enough that we ever have to find out about this stuff. Um, you know, hopefully this. This whole this whole national crisis can sort of wind down, and and particularly with our meat packers uh, and and the, the safety of the employees there, and and the ability to get our, our food processed and distributed uh, throughout the country in a way that we've all kind of frankly 
um, you know, we've had the luxury of taking for granted exactly how it gets out from the farms and out to um, everywhere, you know, that we're so accustomed to being able to access food. Uh, hopefully we it, get past this and we don't have to get that far. Is there anything else in the executive order that that jumped out to you that you think that order covers? Yeah. Or at least, well, or, or at least raises the big question. Okay, yeah. So, and this, this gets in sort of the heart and soul of where the executive order and the DPA connect. Um, and I, when I read this language, I'm reading from the, it's from the perspective of President Trump because it's his executive order. Right. So this is reading from the executive order, and it says, Accordingly, I find that meat and poultry in the food supply chain meet the criteria specified in Section 101B of the Act, and the Act is the DPA. Right. And then it goes on to say, Under the delegation of authority provided in this order, the Secretary of Agriculture shall take all appropriate action under that section to ensure that meat and poultry processors continue operations consistent with guidance for their operations jointly issued by CDC and OSHA. It goes on in the last sentence of the paragraph to say, under the delegation of authority provided in this order, the Secretary of Agriculture may identify additional specific food supply chain resources that meet the criteria of Section 101B. Um, What's important about that uh, to me is, and I'm turning to 4511, so when it says the criteria, specifically this is saying that that section is triggered. And this is the section in the Act that deals with the priority in contracts and allocations. In other words, where a department, in this instance, secretary, is delegated authority to, to issue, uh, take steps to ha- take priority for certain uh, products, um, and, and even, even though it has not been used in decades, is allegation, allocation authority. Um, now, the, when it, it says what, meat, what would an example of that be? Just a, an everyday example. An example would be, and this is this is just kind of being broad and, and very generic right. for hypothetical purposes. An example could be the president ordering uh, General Motors to make uh, uh, a certain type of military equipment for use in uh, in for military purposes in a military conflict. It could be like. Uh, go back to the Gulf, second Gulf War and uh, certain military vehicles needed more fortification due to uh, IED. Uh, yeah, roadside bombs, right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just, I don't know whether this actually happened or not, by the way, I'm just making it up. But right. the government could say, uh, hey, we need these parts. We don't have ready access, uh, and the government's going to take priority. And so that, that person that they're telling, like that GM becomes the prime contractor. And then that prime contractor might then have to also do what's called rated orders with its suppliers. It's uh, the people who supply the stuff that they use to make what they make. Uh, and and it goes on down the chain like that. So it's a dramatic, you know, it's a dramatic use of power. In the in the in the defense world, it's far more common. Uh, it's a common, much more common way of doing business. But uh, now, so did that example did that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so going back to the uh, this issue when it says the criteria of 101B, which uh, for those who want another statutory citation, it's 50 U.S.C. section 4511. Uh, but the criteria says that such material is a scarce and critical material essential to the national defense 
And second, the requirements of the national defense for such material cannot otherwise be met without creating a significant dislocation of the normal distribution of such material in the civilian market to such a degree as to create appreciable hardship. Uh, all that gobbled in, in this case, we're talking about food. Yeah, that's, that's so, the the thing that 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 we're dealing with. Yeah, so the yeah, and all, you're 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 cluing in on it. So in all of that language I read, the the words that really matter are national defense and material, because both of those have statutory definitions and national defense. It to look at the entire framework of the act and any executive orders, including the ones we're specifically talking about, for those to ever become applicable, your gateway into that entire world, you have to walk through this definition uh, of national defense, and and you have to have material. And so uh, here in this executive order from the 28th, the material is not, say, parts, like we use in that example for military equipment. The material is not some type of fluid that might be used in, or it can be, but it's not But it's not something specific. We're not pointing at uh, fabric or type of material necessarily. Here, in this executive order, matching those two, two, two bodies of, 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 of words, if you will, the statute and the executive order, it says uh, that it's the president says, I find that meat and poultry in the food supply chain. So there that's evidencing that it's it's the meat and poultry that is the material. And right. specifically, it's actually beyond that. It's meat and poultry in the food supply chain. Now, uh, if you go to the, the – and the executive order itself is relatively short, by the way. But if you go to the next paragraph uh, – after the one I read earlier, and it has this meet the criteria language in it of 101B or 5411B, uh, it says, notwithstanding Executive Order 13603, and that's what I mentioned to you earlier, and, and for those not used to the legal language, notwithstanding means in spite of or never mind or uh, in other, as a practical matter, they both could potentially apply uh, given whatever fact scenario we're looking at. So, the authority of the president says, notwithstanding that 2012 order, the authority of the president to require performance of contracts or orders other than contracts of employment to promote the national defense or performance of any other contracts or orders to allocate material services and facilities as being necessary or appropriate to promote the national defense and to implement the act in subchapter three, which is the general provisions. Uh, this is the kicker here, or the meat, no pun intended. This is the meat of it. Is, is all of that is delegated to the Secretary of Agriculture with respect to food supply chain resources. And that's a different terminology, food supply chain resources. And then it has comma, including meat and poultry. So I think everybody would agree that this intends to apply to meat and poultry, but in that use of the language, it implies that perhaps somehow it can go beyond uh, meat and poultry, and its food supply chain resources. Well, for those who are involved in agriculture, you know that the food supply chain is a pretty diverse, dynamic, uh, complicated, complex system uh, that, um, you know, is, is it, that is, it's not simple in any way, and there's a lot that comes into it. Um, so and, would that include things like 
freezers for refrigeration of food and fertilizer and what makes up different things to to get to the production part of the food, or is it just the the end product of food itself, or or is it up in the air? It's up in the air, and um, it's something that again we may not ever evolve in this scenario with this pandemic that we ever have to confront these questions, but. You know, uh, food supply chain resources is a broad term. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned fertilizer. Uh, when I mentioned that executive order from 2012, uh, there's authority delegated by the president to the secretary of agriculture there, which have also been, and, and this is in furtherance as directed by the Defense Production Act itself, USDA issued in 2015 regulations that uh, put this in the Federal Register uh there's actually a definition for fertilizer so uh and when we when you think in the broadest sense and, for, and you know we don't have to go into the weeds on it in this interview but uh for anyone who wants to take a deeper dive uh i would recommend that you that you you pull uh the 13603 uh federal or, uh, executive order uh because there it does give some specific authority in all of this to the secretary of ag and and Farm equipment and fertilizer, this, those are uh, terms that are included in that. How about uh, any concluding thoughts? Uh, where are we with with all of this? Um, in a, for lack of a better term, I would just say we are in uncharted waters. Um, this it's hard in a way it's hard to make sense of the executive order a person and, and this would be me sometimes i read it and i think well maybe this is all much ado about nothing you know maybe you know this is it's all important i'm not trying to underline right, right. and then on the other hand i'll read it and i think you know there's there's a lot of room here for example um obviously this is focused on the meat packers but the food supply chain and the food supply chain resources includes farmers. Of course, it includes farmers, dairy producers and cattle producers and poultry producers. And uh, and for someone that wants to dive into it, when you get into these terms, when I, I mentioned national defense and, uh, and you're going to run in the word materials and then the words that are defined in that, you'll run into things like facilities, which is another term of art, and it includes certain buildings and structures it excludes certain things but uh but it also includes services to those facilities uh and so you can quickly just by the definitions uh, in terms of hypotheticals you can draw out quite a bit um uh from this and uh and you know there is a statutory definition as we mentioned of national defense and kind of in a conclusive way here as we kind of wrap up our interview um if you think about it you know and i'm I'm not trying to be funny when i say it but you know is filet mignon or a pork chop in and of itself national security um i guess the best answer i have is is that you know that's it's basically what does the president say (laughs) i mean if 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 the president declares something to be a matter of national security, then that sets a trajectory in terms of the legalities of things that uh, it just is what it is while it is. 
And, you know, of course, underlying, though, that, again, I wasn't trying to be funny when I put it that way, but but food, I think people would generally agree, is a matter of national security and our food supply chain. And so um, it's – so I would say that we're we're in uncharted waters. I mentioned that liability question, for example. Um, But there are provisions that, you know, we we wouldn't have had a reason necessarily to talk about them. But, again, I would encourage someone that – is interested in going farther with this, there are provisions in the act that uh, when they apply, they allow the government to establish loan programs, guaranteed loan programs specifically, in in, uh, in addition to other things. Um, and, you know, when I, I read that and think about, you know, the world of Farm Service Agency and Small Business Administration. Absolutely. Uh, uh, there's a provision in the general uh, act here that says, for example, that the president, and then, of course, the president can delegate, which he has, this authority to whatever it applies to, that they can they can issue any rule, regulation, or order needed to effectuate or carry out the Defense Production Act. Uh, and that's a, that expressly provides that authority. And then a couple of sections over, uh, that rulemaking process is expressly exempted from the Administrative Procedures Act. So, uh, which is the law that applies to, uh, you know, typically to rulemaking of, of federal agencies, uh, the notice and comment rulemaking period that people might be familiar with. Um, that any rule issued is is um, uh, exempt from that. There, it comes with some other uh, requirements that can apply for uh, how you publish, when you publish, and when the rule can take effect, which is essentially a 30-day timeline. Um, but that raises its own questions. Then, of course, go back to that liability provision that says any rule, regulation, or order, uh, compliance with which, you know, a person a person shall not be held uh, liable for damages or penalties. Um, so you can see that there's unknown boundaries when you just look at the language that's been put into law. Uh, and it, I think it just is something that is amorphous and is partly up for our own imaginations as to what uh, what it all can mean and how it might be employed in, in the food supply chain, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, assistance or support or protection of some kind that can be provided in that food supply chain, which, of course, could include, you know, in terms of discussion, farmers. Because it's not just the plant. Uh, it's the it, it's saying food supply chain. Well, we've been speaking with Harrison Pittman. He's the uh, director of the National Ag Law Center, and we certainly have gone into uncharted waters during this interview, but you've given us uh, a lot more clarity of the president's executive order in regards to meatpacking plants. I think, and I, and I appreciate that, Harrison. I also think we both can agree that the labor force that's in those meatpacking plants, uh, we wish, everyone wishes the best for them and that the mm-hmm. COVID-19 infection rate goes down with the new health and safety measures that the Secretary of Agriculture is, is asking those meatpacking plants to meet mm-hmm. and, and that people will show up for work and, and do their job uh, once once the safety, health and safety is protected for them as well. But 
thank you so much for taking the time. You're welcome. uh, Visit with us. That's all for now. Arkansas ICAST returns next week with the latest news and updates about the state's largest industry. Thank you.